Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Last week, we were going through 1 Samuel 13 and 14. We're just going through the book. When we finish 1 Samuel, we'll do 2 Samuel. But we're currently at the part of the story where God is dismantling Saul's kingdom because of disobedience. But here's how Saul walked in disobedience. Saul wasn't the kind of person that just heard what God said and said, I don't want to do that. I'm going to do my own thing. Saul's thing was to take the Lord's command. God said, do this thing. And then what Saul would do is he would kind of round off the edges. He would take God's command and he'd cut off maybe like 20% of it. And that remaining 80, he would, he would treat like 100. And he would say, this 80%, like I, I did it 100%. I'm, I'm obedient. The problem is that we've learned in numerous places throughout scripture that partial obedience is an obedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. And that is the reason why God is starting to dismantle Saul's kingdom. Because Saul is convinced that he's walking in obedience by doing part of what the Lord told him to do, but he's ignoring the other part and pretending like his commands are greater than the Lord's. So. It's kind of a dark place in the history of Israel. We're at a place now where we've come through uh, judges. If you're just reading through the story of Israel, you've gone through judges, it was a real low point. And then you get into 1 Samuel and you're thinking, all right, things might just turn, things might be getting better, and then they don't because you find out that there's like this priest named Eli and he's letting his sons do all kinds of wicked things around the temple. And then God tells him, hey, I'm ripping the, the, the priesthood away from you. And then we're introduced with this king, and now the king has had his kingdom ripped away from him. So, like, top to bottom, things just don't look good in the life of Israel. Everywhere you look, every news report, it's bad news. But in the middle of the bad news, in the middle of the darkness and the dismantling and the sorrow and the sadness and the disobedience, God is at work. And that's the story for today. So let's go to 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. It starts off by saying, Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, go and depart. Go down and from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. So there was another group that was living among the Amalekites. Saul shows them mercy, tells them it's time to get out of town unless you want to die like the Amalekites. See, you showed us kindness, all the people of Israel, when we came out of Egypt. And so the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And there Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Sha'ur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. Now that, that's interesting, because that's not actually what the Lord said, is it? Utterly destroy everything but he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted destruction to all the people with the edge of the sword. But Paul and the people, excuse me, Saul and the people spared Agag from the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them and all that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. Okay, so they gave, so, so they obeyed in the things that were uh, worthless they had no meaning, but in the things that were valuable, they kept for themselves. Now, this story, as we start in, much like many of the chapters, lots of locations, lots of places, things that might be a little confusing. So let's walk through this story um, looking at a map of the region. 
So we're going to start in zooming on the same area of the Middle East, but today our map zoom in is a little bit wider than it has been. So you'll see our mile markers are a little longer, about 60 miles or so. Please don't hold me to that. It's close enough. Good. It's close enough for government work. 60 miles, okay, ish. Egypt over here on the far left. Then you've got the land of Sha'ur next to it to the right. The Sinai Peninsula down in the bottom. Sinai is where Israel was traveling after they came out of uh, bondage from Egypt. We've got Havilah was mentioned in the text here. The big word Amalek, that's kind of the region where this group of people resided in. And then we've got the two cities that are called out in this area. Gibeah, Gibeah of Saul, that's kind of the palace, the hometown. That's where Saul lives currently. And Tel Aim is where he gathered all the troops. So here's the background story. When Israel left Egypt, as soon as they crossed the Red Sea and started wandering in the Sinai Peninsula, down there in the area where it says the Sinai, there was a group of people called Amalek. That's, that's where their region were. As soon as Israel started going in and wandering in the Promised Land, Amalek came in with their forces and they started picking off the Israelites who were straggling in the back. This story comes from Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19, and we're told that God put Amalek at the time of Moses under judgment because of how they treated Israel. They were a wicked people. They would come in, and when grandma and grandpa, they couldn't move as fast as everybody else in the tribe, and they're kind of, and all of a sudden, bam, they got shot with an arrow. They get killed, or the little kids wandering off, Amalek's coming in, killing the little kids. All right, so these weren't like nice people who just made bad choices. Like these were wicked people. These are the kind of people who really liked child sacrifices. So they came in and they completely just picked off Israel and, and it was a bad situation. And so what God said was, one day, Amalek, you're going to be under judgment. Well, guess what? Today is that day. Now Israel has moved into the land, all the tribes have their land, now they have a king, and God says through the prophet Samuel to Saul, it's your job to deal with this. I have put these people under judgment, and you're going to be my sword. It is your time to come in and accomplish my judgment over these people. So Saul gathers everybody together, they come out of Gibeah, they gather in Tel Aim, and they come down and we're told that he, uh, that he almost utterly destroyed all of Amalek from Havilah to Shur. So it was a complete destruction. He wiped out all those except for the king and also the nicest of the sheep and also the nicest of the oxen. Now before we go any further into the story, there's something we kind of have to touch on. Because it is common for our modern sensibilities to read something like this, like utter total destruction for all the men, the women, the childs, and the infants, the ox, and the sheep, and to stumble over God's commands of total destruction. I'm not going to sit here and, uh, and be the judge for God, uh, I, I, or I don't actually need to be an attorney on his behalf to argue his case, um, just letting you know he's God. He calls the shots, not you. But here's something that you should consider if that's still not good enough. You don't see all things clearly. So when you're reading this story, you're reading into this story things that you know about modern nations, and you're assuming to yourself that you have all the information that would make you an impartial judge. The problem is you don't. You don't know the hearts of the people. You don't know the condition of these people at the time. You don't know the wickedness that they continued to walk in and how bad it got because frankly, here's the story. The period of time between when Moses was given the command, hey, Amalek's under destruction, to the moment of this story right here, 300 years. That's how long it took. So you got a period of time of 300 years of Amalek, he could have repented. That nation could have turned, but we're told that they didn't. They continued to walk in corruption. And so we're told that they were under destruction. And so when we read this, we think, well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, just understand that your idea of fair is based off of your understanding and having the whole picture, and you just don't. You don't know the hearts of people. But the other part of this is the guy that does know the whole picture is God, the righteous judge. And we're told that the wages of sin is death. He said it, not me. 
So 300 years, Amalek is storing up wages for all the sin they're committing. What is the payment? How is God going to pay them for all, the, in, in, for all the wages of sin that they've been stockpiling? Well, he pays them in death. That's the way it goes. Now, there's one other thing that is, it's, it's kind of weird, and that's why I like it. And so I just want to share it with you because this is a good example of pieces of information that you may not necessarily have when you're trying to objectively judge whether something in Scripture upsets you or not. All right, so I've mentioned this a couple times. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, so I'm just going to kind of breeze through it quickly. Some of you will be mad at this, but I don't care. I'm going to go through it. So Genesis 6, we're familiar with a story where we're told that the sons of God, who were divine angelic beings, left their place. Jude references this. Peter references this in the New Testament. They left their station. They left their place. They, they stepped out, of, out from under the authority of God, and they procreated with human women. And the offspring of that relationship of divine angelic beings who rebelled against God and human women were this new race of people created in the image of these angels called Nephilim, giant people. This is Genesis 6. It got so bad that these giant clans, these giant people were filling the earth and demonstrating their dominance over humankind and corrupting the bloodline of God. So God has humans who are image bearers, people who are created in God's image, and now these divine beings who rebelled against God, they also have humans that were created in their image. The wickedness got so bad, God said, I'm gonna flood the earth. That was the story of Noah. And then after the story of Noah, right around Genesis 9, coming in on 10, we're told that after the flood, God creates a covenant with Noah and his sons. So now the covenant is with Noah and his sons, but then we're told in Genesis 10 that that covenant spread throughout the whole earth. Now, through Noah's descendants, now the whole earth is being populated. It's called the table of nations, Genesis 10. It's all of the nations that were populated, and, and fundamentally what you have is the entire world is under and has a covenant with God again after the flood. But then we come to Genesis 11. Tower of Babel, which is a story that we kind of just read over and don't really think much about, but it's, it has massive significance. It's a big deal. So at Genesis 11, you've got all the nations effectively are under covenant with God, and they rebel against that covenant in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. They say, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build a, let's build a place of worship for ourselves. Let's, be as, let's raise ourselves as high as the heavens. And God's like, yeah, I'm not having any of this. You know, I had a covenant with you, and you don't want any part of me, so here's what's going to happen. I'm going to disinherit the nations. No more covenant with you guys. I'm going to change your languages. I'm going to split you across the entire world. You're going to be your own nations. You're not going to be one people. You're not going to understand each other. There's going to be different races. I'm going to split you out through all the nations. And I'm not going to be your God anymore. I'll come back for you one day, but I'm disinheriting you. And then the very next chapter is the call of Abraham out of that disinheritance of the nations. And God says, I'm going to make you a people. But we're told in Deuteronomy 32 that when that happened, when God disinherited the nations, he assigned angelic beings to watch over those new nations. And then we find out in Psalm 82 that those angelic beings did the same thing that the original rebellious angels did back in Genesis 6. Psalm 82. They rebelled, they started procreating with women again, and all of a sudden, you've got new generations of Nephilim and giants running everywhere. How do we know that? Because that's the first thing that the men who went into the promised land told Joshua when they came back. We can't take that land. It's full of giants, descendants of the Nephilim. I'm, gonna hear, I'm not out here trying to fight a 13-foot man. Now, the average height of a Hebrew at that time probably would have been 5'5", five, 5'6". Five, five, so you imagine looking at somebody between the height of 9 foot and 13 foot. But they were, they were judged for that. They were told, you don't have faith in God? Like, you literally watched the Red Sea part. What more do you need, people? They, no, 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 we're scared, we're scared. 
So why am I bringing this up now? Because there's a piece of information that would play into the fact that you don't have all the pieces of information. Most scholars say that when you read through the book of Joshua, one of the things you confront is this idea that the people were afraid that they were giants in the land. Guess what? Every tribe that's listed in the book of Joshua as having giants in the land was also a tribe that God told the people of Israel when they did come into the land to completely, utterly destroy them. Isn't that interesting that God didn't command that every people living in this region wouldn't be utterly destroyed? The Kenites aren't utterly destroyed, but every people group that has some connection to a fallen angel, demonic um, uh, bloodline has to be completely wiped out because those people are not image bearers of God, they're image bearers of divine fallen beings. I told you it was weird. You're like, ah, that's too weird. This will be my last Sunday. <laughs> okay. It's in the Bible. I, like, I'm just trying to tell you what's in the Bible. My point in bringing that up is that there are pieces of information you might not know. God, why would you utterly destroy? Because God's looking at these people and saying, these aren't my people. These aren't image bearers. These are descendants of a wicked rebellion. And I want people to come in and take the land so that we can reach the nations. And this, this rebellion, it's not part of my plan. I want it utterly destroyed. However you read this, maybe you read this and you're like, I don't have any issue with this. God's God and he, that's fine. Maybe you're reading this and you're like, I really stumble over that. Just understand that any way you slice it, Yahweh is God over all creation. And a 300, period, 300 year period of time had been given to these people to repent. And it should remind us right now of the period of time we're walking in right now. We've been given a season of repentance. The gospel is going forth to all nations and any human being on planet Earth that wants to turn from their sin and turn to God can and experience complete forgiveness and redemption and a new life. But I'm telling you that there is an expiration date on that offer. The gospel will not go forth forever. There is coming a period of time where the king of glory is gonna crack the sky and going to return to the nations, and if they haven't repented, they will be under a worse judgment than Amalek. So if you're stumbling over this, don't read the book of Revelation. Because what's coming for this nation, this tribe, it's coming for everybody, including America. Everyone's under judgment. And the only way to come out from under that judgment is to turn to Jesus Christ. Some of you like that. But this is a good example right here of Saul hearing God's command and trimming off 20% and treating the remaining 80 like 100. He spared the king, he spared the flocks, and he actually starts defending his position when Samuel confronts him. Let's look at that in verse 10. It says, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. This is what the word of the Lord says. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Just a side note, man, that's really what you should be doing with your anger. That's the best thing you could do with your anger. Cry out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. Behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned past and went on down to Gilgal. So, so Samuel is looking for Saul the next day, and the first thing he finds out is that this guy has started making monuments to himself. It is not looking good. And Samuel said to Saul, when they finally caught up, Saul said to him, hey, brother, blessed be you to the Lord. Man, I've performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel says, well, what is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, well, well they, the people, they brought them from the Amalekites, from the, the, the people. They're the people. They're the ones that did it. They spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord told me this night. And he said, oh man, speak. I'd love to hear what the Lord has to say. Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes. He, that's, that's sarcasm. Okay, he wasn't little in his own eyes. He's calling back to the fact that the first time they met, he said, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest of the tribes. I'm nobody. 
Samuel's touching on that. Though you're little in your own eyes, are you, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission. And he said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. And when they did not obey the voice of the Lord, why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and I brought back Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, they're the problem. The people took of the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction. And they did it to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel confronts Saul in this disobedience and we discover that, Samuel, that Saul has now made a monument for himself. He's going around telling everybody that he's, he's got victory. He's being obedient. He's even convinced himself that he was obedient in God's commands. And any disobedience that, Saul, that Samuel does happen to find in Saul's life, guess what? Not my fault, it's the people's fault. I'm not disobedient. It's the people who are disobedient. They're the ones you need to be looking at. This conversation is fascinating to me because it serves like a mirror. When you read this conversation, our first interpretation is like, oh, this guy's not, he's making some bad choices, like left and right. But if you look deeper and you allow the Holy Spirit to do his work, as you're reading this conversation, you hear Saul in your head rationalizing the decisions you've made in your life. And here's how it goes. Um, I obeyed. I put to death the Amalekites. All of the obvious sins that we as a social people have agreed are not good, I put those to death. I haven't killed anybody. I'm not a drunk. I treat my family nice. I go to church every week. I do all the right things. There's just one problem. You haven't put that king to death. That king of sin that still rules on your throne, you haven't even addressed him. You're walking around that the, like, like the big things that you think matter have already been dealt with all the while shaving off that 20%, that 20% was actually the big deal you needed to deal with. Sure, you, 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 you're not walking uh, in these atrocious sins that we would all say, okay, congratulations, you're not addicted to drugs and you, you haven't killed anybody, but you sure don't have a control over that tongue of yours. When you speak, it isn't filled with gratitude. When, when you look at your own life, you, you, you haven't put pride or godlessness to death. You haven't dealt with discontentment or ungratefulness. You still treasure your treasures more than you treasure Christ. And so when we read this story, this story is serving like a mirror to us. The Holy Spirit is using the Bible to hold up a mirror and say, hey, take a good look. Because for all of that pride you have and saying, man, I'm glad I'm not like Saul. Ask yourself, are you really not like Saul? Congratulations for taking out the Amalekites, but you saved some of the best stuff for yourself. That's what's so fascinating about me in the New Testament story about Ananias and Sapphira. They didn't have to give anything. They sold their property and they could have kept the whole proceeds and that would have been fine. The problem was that they sold their property and they told the church and the Holy Spirit, this is how much we made and we made, we're gonna give all of it, but they kept some of it back. That's the problem. Lying to yourself. That spirit of deception that you walk in. That's that 20% we're talking about. Good, everybody on the outside sees that good Christian face and that mask that you wear to church and everything's okay. But, but when are you gonna put the, the king to death? When are you gonna deal with that real thing? That's, that's the thing. When are you gonna put that to death? So what Samuel does is he, he exposes Saul's desire to use the Amalekites as some religious ba badge of honor all the while the king still lives. And this is why it's so tough, because we do the same thing. We use these other things that we say are important in a society that we don't do. Oh, okay, we're moral, high-standing, upright people. Okay, we're good. We're just using that as a religious front to, to, to pull attention away from the fact that we haven't really put the king to death. That king that's sitting on the throne that belongs to Jesus. Maybe he looks like you. Maybe you're the king. You haven't put yourself to death. You haven't crawled down in that grave and let him raise you to new life. 
because you like the way you're living. You like the thoughts that you think. You like the websites that you visit. You don't want anybody telling you what to do with your money. Certainly the God of the universe. Time to put, a, uh, time to put uh, Agag to death. So Samuel comes to him and he, he confronts Saul with this and he, he preaches a, a pow- pretty powerful sermon. Pick it up in verse 22. Samuel said he, excuse me, Samuel said, well, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption, a coercion, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, oh, okay, all right. I've sinned, I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Okay, this looks maybe good. Okay, maybe. He's starting to have some self-reflection. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me and I bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I'm not gonna return with you for you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away, and Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel turned back, this is one of my favorite verses in scripture. Samuel turned back and looked him dead in the eye and says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel for you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Oh, man, if I had a time machine, this is top 10 where I'd go. Man, to deceive, the other one is is Nathan the prophet when he confronts David. The Lord has torn the kingdom from him and he's given it to a neighbor who's better than you. Ay, ay, ay. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. That's, it's interesting. So God, he doesn't lie. He doesn't have regret. For he's not a man that he should have regret. God's gonna do what he said he's gonna do. And then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders. Oh, okay, so now we're seeing it. Now he shows his hand. He wasn't really repentant. He wasn't really confessing his sin. He didn't really wanna turn. He wanted to garner enough support in Samuel's eyes so that Samuel would keep supporting him as king in front of the other elders. Then he said, I've sinned, yet please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Please return with me that I may bow down before the Lord your God. Complete godless lifestyle. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. So Samuel went back with him. That's interesting, why did Samuel go? We're about to find out. Because Samuel has to do the job that Saul couldn't. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag is all over here saying, surely the bitterness of death has passed. (laughs) Things are gonna be okay. I escaped. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among the women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. (sighs) That Hebrew word hacked, means hacked. (laughs) Hacked him to pieces. And Samuel went to Ramah. This is the saddest part of the story. Samuel went to Ramah. And Saul went to his house in Gilgal, excuse me, Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he ever made Saul king over Israel. Two things we've got to cover. First, this idea of regret. We're told in 15, uh, 1 Samuel 15, 11 and uh, verse 35 that the Lord regretted making Saul king, but then we're told in verse 29 that the Lord doesn't regret. So what is it? Does the Lord regret or not regret? Well, the, the writer is trying to get you to understand that the Lord does regret, but he doesn't regret like you. See, when you regret, you feel this pity over the decisions you make. I should have never done that. I have made a terrible mistake. But that's not what the Lord does. When the Lord regrets, he mourns over the decisions that his creation is making. Because here's the thing, Saul was given a new heart. We were told that just a few chapters before. 
The Spirit of God rushed on him. He was given a new heart. There was no lack. We can't read the story and see, and, and see like, and feel like, man, well, Saul was just set up. He never had a chance. No, he had a chance. He was given a new heart and a new opportunity to, to do everything that the Lord had told him to do. But what, he, what did he do with that new heart? He turned back to his old selfish ways. Let's look at Samuel's sermon to Saul. His little sermon, little mini sermon here on obedience. He says, the Lord delights in obedience, not sacrifice. That's interesting, because in Psalm 40, verse six, King David writes a psalm citing Samuel's words to Saul that the Lord doesn't delight in sacrifices. He delights in obedience. He wants that ear that he's dug for us. He wants us to listen. He desires obedience rather than sacrifice. What does that mean, he desires obedience rather than sacrifice? Let me explain it this way. Imagine your dad tells you, like, like his birthday's coming up, and you're like, Dad, what do, I, what do you want for your birthday? Like, I wanna get you something really nice. And your dad, being an awesome, wise dad, he says, I don't want anything from you. You're my son, I'm not looking for presents. I want time. I want to hang out with you. I want you to be with me. I don't want anything. I just want you to be with me. And so you, because you're a busy person, you're like, ah, you know, thanks, Dad. That's that's cute. You're not a dad yet, so you don't really understand it. Like, surely he would want the same kind of things I want. Stuff. Expensive stuff. So his birthday rolls around, you don't put it on the calendar, you forget, and then you realize it's his birthday and you don't have time to go over and see him. And so what you do is, man, you just, you splurge, you buy the nicest, biggest present you possibly can, and you have it sent to his house. Big bow, big cards, happy birthday, dad, love you. About a month passes, you don't hear anything from your dad. You follow up, hey, did you get the present? Yeah, I got the present. What's the matter, did you like it? Not really. You get, you get offended. I spent so much money on it. That's something I would have liked. How could you not like that, Dad? Dad says, I told you what I liked. I told you what I wanted. But you gave me what you wanted. That's what we're talking about. This is the heart behind Samuel telling Saul, the Lord desires obedience rather than sacrifice. He doesn't want what you think is a good present. He wants what he has commanded as a present. When we bring our worship before the Lord, he has de- he's decreed what he expects of his people, and it is obedience, to walk in what I said, not what you think I meant, or what is most convenient for you. No, he wants you to bring to him what he has already decreed in his word, what worship should look like. The problem is that we start seasoning it with our own sense of worship. I don't really like that. It's uncomfortable. I don't like doing that thing. The Bible commands us through multiple, you read through the Old Testament, there's time after time after time, every time the people of God came together for worship, what happens? We're told that the people lifted their hands in worship. We're told in the New Testament, what are men supposed to do when they come to look? They're supposed to lift up holy hands before the Lord. But there's a part of us just like, well, I don't really like that. That's weird. I'm not Pentecostal, I don't do that. I wasn't raised that way. It seems awkward. Look, I get it, and I'm not trying to twist your arm to start doing things you don't like doing, but this is a really good example of something that is all throughout our tradition that the people of God do, and, for, and, and it is pleasing to the Lord that when we come and worship, one of the things, not the only thing, and you don't have to do it every time, but one of the things that we do that is just normal is that we lift our hands in worship. And for us to say, like, I don't like bringing you that present. I'm gonna bring you a different present. Think about that illustration. The next time we're in worship and you're contemplating what it is the Lord has asked of his people. He has asked us to sing a joyful song. Well, I don't really like singing. 
or I don't have a good voice. Look, you can use all the excuses or what, what, look, whatever you want. This is between you and him. You're not going to make me mad about this kind of stuff. You're going to see me over there jumping, raising my hands and singing. I don't really care what you do. All I'm trying to tell you is that from the word of God, there are certain expectations for what worship looks like and bringing in an obedient lifestyle to God. And there is a habit in the heart of men and women to say, yeah, I hear you, but I think I'm going to bring you something different. And out of this whole thing, this whole story of a man who wouldn't bring God what God commanded he would bring, this sorrow, this sadness, this dismantling of his kingdom, all of a sudden, you're reading through here and you hit chapter 16, and all of a sudden, it's like the sun starts rising. You've got this story of Samuel like confronting Saul's sin and saying, look, dude, I'm going to call sin for what it is. You're walking in rebellion. It's like witchcraft. And you jump over the New Testament, you think of Jesus, and we're, we think of the way we rationalize sin. Oh, man, you know, well, like, it, it, it's, it's, I just struggle with my thought life. No, dude, Jesus said that lust, that's adultery. I've never committed murder. Have you hated anyone in your heart? Let's just go ahead and stop changing words for sin so that we kind of make ourselves feel better and get a, get a hall pass to keep doing the things we want to do. And let's do what Samuel was doing to Saul and just calling sin for what it is and letting the Holy Spirit have its deep work and stop making excuses for that thing that you say is, oh, it's just so hard, I can't get over it. Well, yeah, you can. First step, start calling it for what it is. Quit playing with fire in your living room and pretending like it's not going to catch into the curtains and burn your whole house down. Sin spreads, so let's name it what it really is, and let's stop pretending, and let's get to a place where we treat it seriously. But in the middle of all this, all of a sudden there's this, this sun that's rising. There's this story of this, this new king. Go to 1 Samuel 16, let's go to verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, well, how can I go, Lord? If Saul hears, he's going to kill me. And the Lord says, take with you a heifer and say that when you've come, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. That's interesting. First time, only time in Samuel's whole life where he's commanded the Lord to go do something and he, he doesn't, he doesn't, he didn't, Excuse me, he doesn't know what he's looking for. He shows up not knowing who this guy's going to be. So Samuel did what the Lord commanded. Verse four, came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came out to meet him, trembling, because when Samuel shows up to town, you don't know what's gonna happen. I just heard this dude hacked somebody to pieces over another town, so, hey Samuel, what's up? <laughs> Everything good? Do you come peaceably? Verse five, and he said, peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And everybody wipes the sweat off their brow. <laughs> Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And, and he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked and Eliab, and he thought, man, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So, so all of uh, Jesse's sons are lined up and the first one comes forward, Eliab, tall, handsome, oldest. Surely the Lord's anointed with him. But the Lord looks at Samuel and he says, do not look at this man's appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. A man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel and said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. So Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. So Samuel said to Jesse, Man, are, are, these, are these all your sons? And he said, well, there's, there's one, the youngest, but he's out keeping the sheep. I can just imagine Samuel's like, what part of bring all your sons did you not understand? <laughs> Samuel says to Jesse, send and get him, for he will not sit down until he comes. And when he brought him in, he was ruddy and beautiful eyes and handsome. And the Lord says, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went back to his hometown, Ramah. So on the news headlines, you've got all this bad stuff happening in Israel, but out of nowhere, God says, I'm doing a new thing. 
I've picked a man for myself, and this man is a man after my own heart. He's not the tallest, he's not the oldest, he's not the one that anybody would have chosen, but his heart is the kind of heart that I like in a man. Now what does it mean to have a heart like God's heart. It means that David aligned his desires with God's desires. This little kid who was out watching sheep and writing songs and protecting his sheep from the lions and the tigers and the bears, this kid is out here writing worship songs to the Lord. He's got one eye on the sheep and one eye on the Lord, and that kind of kid makes a good pastor. That kind of kid makes a good king. Because if you could keep one eye on God's people and the other eye on God, if you can keep one ear on what's happening to the sheep and another ear on God speaking, your heart is turned towards the Lord. This young man loved God's word. He loved worship. He loved God's people. And he was the polar opposite of, David, or of Saul. There's just one problem. He's just a kid watching sheep out in the middle of nowhere how is he gonna get training to become the next king? He's not even old enough. Let's finish the story in verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. That's really important. The spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. What came in its place? A harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, All right, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And one of the young men said, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, a Bethlehemite, He's pretty skillful in playing. He's a man of valor, a man of war. He's prudent in speech. He's a man of good presence. And well, frankly, the Lord is with him. And therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. Now, if you've read this story before, you're like, you know what's coming. But imagine reading this for the first time. Imagine, imagine reading through this and being confronted with the reality that Saul's replacement has just been invited to sit at Saul's feet. If you're watching this on TV, you're just like, oh no, this is the big plot twist at the end of the season finale. But it gets even crazier because when the kid comes in, Jesse took a donkey laden with bread, skin of wine, and a young man, he sends David to Saul, and David came and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer, and Saul sent to Jesse, let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it in his hand. And Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So David's training ground is to sit at the feet of the current king, Saul. Do you remember Samuel's words in 1528? God is ripping the kingdom from you and giving it to a neighbor who is better than you. Saul just invited that neighbor into his own house. And without realizing it, he's going to train David how to be king in the greatest way that you learn um, how to walk in leadership. This is the funny way about God's leadership school. You're like, Lord, teach me about leadership. Be careful praying that prayer. Because here's how God does things. He will set you under a completely dysfunctional, godless leader, and he will say, watch this man and do everything the opposite of what you see. And it excuses us from this desire. We're like, well, Lord, I can't excel. I can't do what you've called me to do because I don't have any good fathers. I don't have any good leaders. I can't, there's I got nobody to look to. Well, you're in good company. Samuel didn't have that. David didn't have that. God has a habit of raising up his young men, young women in leadership by looking at the dysfunction around them and saying, take good notes, because I just want you to do the opposite. So this is an amazing story, right? You've, you, you've, you've got from darkness, you think things are bad, and all of a sudden, man, the, 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 the sun comes up, light shines, things are looking amazing. Like, this is good, but there's something in here, frankly, I've never seen before. 
In preparing for this this week, I'm reading through these last four, a few verses, 14 through 20, 23, and it dawns on me, like, you've got this, the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, and a harmful spirit comes and torments Saul. The moment Saul rejects the Lord and the Lord departs from Saul, that space is immediately replaced with something, a spiritual haunting. Now, theologians are kind of in disagreement about what this looks like, this harmful spirit. Was it, was it an angelic being that came and his assignment was to just wreak havoc on Saul? Was it some kind of mental affliction, like some kind of depression, something? Or, or was it a demonic spirit that the Lord commanded, I want you to go and I want you to plague him? I think it's the last one. And I say that because as I'm reading through this, in my mind, I'm starting to think through some of the previous studies that we've done. Do you remember uh, Isaiah 13, 19 through 22, when the prophet Isaiah speaks to the nations that one of the things that's gonna happen because they have turned from the Lord is that they're going to be a haunt that there's going to be, uh, like God is gonna completely just eliminate them as a nation and in replacement, the only thing gonna be living within those city's walls are jackals and owls. He says it again to Babylon in Isaiah 34, 10 through 15. Because you have gone too far and rejected Yahweh's command in making Israel your slaves, You've gone too far, you've oppressed them, you've gone beyond what I commanded, I'm going to decimate you. I'm going to eliminate you as a people, you're gonna be completely wiped out, and here's what's gonna happen at the end. The only people living within the walls of Babylon are gonna be screeching owls, and hyenas, and serpents. And then John, in Revelation 18.2, reinterprets that verse in Isaiah about not just the Babylon Babylon, but the spirit of Babylon at the end of the age. And he says, those who are godless, those who have rejected the Lord, they're going to be a haunt for every unclean and demotic spirit. Now why am I bringing this out? Because there seems to be a clear understanding in scripture that when we as a people reject the Lord's commands, when we turn from him and he lifts his presence and he vacates the premises, New Testament would describe it as grieving the Holy Spirit. What happens then? All of a sudden it becomes a playground for haunting demonic presence. And the moment I say that, you start thinking, well, huh, well that makes some of the news articles I've been reading make a little more sense. I'm bringing this up because I want you to understand that there's more at stake than you just looking at the commands of God and saying, well, I could do that one, that one, that one, that one's too hard, I'll get to that one later and I'm never gonna address that one. There's more at stake than you just looking at the commands and saying, I don't have time for it, it's not important. There's very low stakes if I ignore this. No, folks. These, this is not a low stakes game. This is not a game at all. When you hear the Lord's commands, when you hear them preached on a Sunday morning, when you read them, you're accountable for them. And when you disobey, when you walk in disobedience, you grieve the Holy Spirit. And if you continue down that path, Hebrews 6 shows up. All of a sudden, you come to a place where it's like, well, well what could possibly turn you back if you've given your heart over to this sinful world? Well, guess what's going to happen? Your life becomes a haunt for every unclean and demonic spirit. I can't tell you how many men I've sat across from in counseling sessions and, and they've given themselves over to an adultery situation and all of a sudden now their life is just hiding. Hiding things from their wife, hiding things on their phone. The only way to describe the life that they're living isn't a life filled with peace and joy. It's a haunt of every unclean spirit. And you see this in our society. Why in the world are, are we at an all-time high on medicating people? We're at a place where we have just said to God's commands, I don't want them, not interested. And we think that there's no repercussions. Or the only repercussion is on the other side of heaven. Well, you'll either go to heaven or hell. No, the Bible is clear. There are repercussions here and now for you walking in disobedience to God's commands. And one of those is your life 
will feel like a haunt for every unclean and demonic spirit. And suddenly you're like, oh, that connects some dots. Because if you think, if, if you were to describe to me what your life is like right now after giving yourself over to demonic activity, to sin, to just to disobedience, the best way to describe it biblically, it would just be like, my soul feels empty. It feels like the only thing in there is just a bunch of screeching owls and serpents. That's the way I would describe my life. I feel lost. And folks, I don't want that for you. I don't want that for, for you, your individual life. I don't want that for your family. I don't want it for the church. Remember what, what, um, John, what Jesus said to John uh, in Revelation uh, about the church in Ephesus? If you don't turn from your ways, I'm gonna remove my lampstand. We're gonna lift the presence. And what comes in, what's after that? It's a haunt for every other. Guess what? You can't go to the church of Ephesus today. So why am I bringing this up? Because man, this is a good story. This is a story where, where God's redemptive plan keeps, keeps coming. But, then, but, but in the middle of this command, all of this is happening. Saul is getting replaced because he didn't follow God's commands. He was disobedient. So, so here's how we're gonna close. Asking yourself, what is the Lord asking of me? What is the demand to walk in obedience in my life? And yes, there is a parameter for morality. We are talking in terms of like, stop looking at that. Stop talking that way. Stop thinking that way. Stop treating people that way. There's a way to walk in a moral sense where, where literally walking in God's commands makes you a different kind of person. But there's other commands that aren't necessarily tied to sin. They're commands he gave his people and only his people like the Great Commission. Go forth and preach the good news. This is what it says, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. So when we're talking in terms of walking in obedience, you're looking at Saul's life, you're like, yeah, cool, cool. Like I, I'm, I'm eliminating all the sin, good for you. Keep walking and growing in holiness, but there's more to obedience than just saying no to sin. Here's the other part of that, building God's kingdom. Good for you if you're saying no to sin, but are you walking in obedience in building God's kingdom? Because if you're not, and you're spending your free time building your own kingdom, I've got bad news for what's coming your way. And here's the good news for society. You look, what is the best thing you could do for our world? The best thing you could do for our fallen world is to obey the commands of the Lord. Because every time the good news in God's kingdom goes forth, the same thing happens with David and Saul. Every time that haunting spirit started coming for Saul, guess what? David started praying the worship music of the Lord and that, Saul, that spirit, it departed. So you're looking at this world like, man, it is a dark place to live. Well, I've got good news. Your office doesn't have to be a dark place to live anymore. Start obeying the commands and spreading the kingdom. Start playing some worship music. Put a Bible out on your desk. Start some conversations around the water cooler that are not just about whatever show just came out on Netflix, but what you just learned at church or what God showed you in the word of God. Because the moment you start advancing the gospel and talking about the kingdom of God, it starts establishing roots and you're gonna be amazed at some of this haunting that just kinda disappears. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.